Okay, so Mark chapter 11, uh, go ahead and stand. We're going to read, and we're going to do uh, a larger chunk today. So we're going to be looking at the first 25 verses of Mark chapter 11. So uh, follow along as we read together this morning. <clears throat> now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and to Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And on the following day, when they came to Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season of fit for figs. And he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw a fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you of your trespasses. Alright, have a seat. Let's pray. And ask God to bless our time this morning. Heavenly Father, as we now enter into our time of uh, study of your word, we uh, are looking at a passage of Jesus himself entering. And Lord, he is entering into a religious context, a context where he is looking and evaluating and seeing the way that people seek to, to worship. And so this morning... We recognize that in many ways uh, it's a chance for us to look as well and wonder, Lord, what Christ sees in our lives uh, when he enters into our worship. What is it that is true and sincere and what, Lord, might be um, perhaps hypocritical? Uh, so help us this morning. We, we need your wisdom and we, we need your grace. We want to serve you well. We want to love you the way that you have called us to. But... Lord, that often comes with some, some pain and some refining. So uh, we pray that you would do your work in us this morning through the ministry of your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, nothing quite says the Christmas season like the Easter season, right? Kind of unique, right, that we are entering into Christmas time, and yet what we have before us this morning is one of the key passages related to the Easter season, right? God's providence that that would be uh, the case. But we have kind of the irony here of Jesus entering into the Passion Week and the triumphal entry, all at the same time that we are entering into the 
Advent season. Many of you have probably even started doing some type of maybe uh, Christmas countdown in your household. So very unique timing-wise, yet this is also a reminder this season when we celebrate Christmas of why Jesus himself entered into this world for us, right? So in many ways, it's ironic, and yet in many ways, it's very fitting because this is the very purpose for why we are celebrating this season, to remind ourselves that Jesus has come. And in our passage this morning, Jesus has finally come to his final destination, which is Jerusalem. And as he now enters into Jerusalem, something that he's been building towards for the last several chapters in the Gospel of Mark, Mark does something unique here. He takes the remote control and he pushes the slow-mo button. Because really for the first 10 chapters, even though it may not feel like we've gone really fast because we've looked at this for like the last year, uh, he's really in many ways been pushing the fast-forward button. He's been going rapidly, right? Even the beginning of the gospel, if you remember, it doesn't even have a birth narrative. It just starts out, you know, the story of the Son of God, and it like, boom, launches right into his earthly ministry. And in many ways, gone really quick sequentially through his life up until this very point. And Mark basically takes a remote and says, slow, slow down. Because what has taken 10 chapters to cover about three years worth of ministry, he's now going to take six chapters to cover one week. Right? So very unique in terms of what Mark does. And as I already alluded to, this is the final section of this gospel. In many ways, the first uh, eight chapters was kind of this, this buildup of this identity of who Jesus is. The last several chapters have kind of been uh, this confusion of uh, who Jesus is, the spiritual blindness type thing that we've been going back and forth of seeing Jesus accurately especially in relation to Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And now, finally, we've entered into this final movement of Mark's gospel. And Mark is drawing our attention to the culmination of why Jesus has come. He is the sacrificial servant who must now serve through his own sacrifice. But in so doing, Jesus still makes it very clear that he is the true and coming king who will render a verdict on all who claim to worship him. And so the big idea that I want you to think about as we look at this familiar story this morning is this, that as king, Jesus will judge the sincerity of your faith. That if Jesus is this true triumphal king as this story presents him to be, then he also has the right and the authority and the ability to judge and to evaluate the sincerity of your faith. And as much as we want to view Jesus' entry into Jerusalem with celebration like these crowds and these masses do, it really is a passage that calls for you to evaluate your own life personally. Most of us like the thought of, of Palm Sunday, of the, the, the waving of the palm branches and the celebration of Jesus and his coming. But as I've studied this passage over the last week and really over the last couple of years, I've come to see this text for what it is and that it beckons us to ask the question, who exactly are we worshiping? Who or what exactly is it that you are worshiping with your life. And so as we work through the story this morning, I want to give you two questions to ask yourself about the nature of your faith. Okay, Two very important questions that I think this passage maybe forces you to wrestle with this morning. And the first question is this, is your faith misplaced in Jesus? Is your faith misplaced in Jesus? Verses 1 through 11 of Mark chapter 11 here are very familiar to most of us, I'm guessing, in this room. It's the story of the what's called triumphal entry. In fact, I'm willing to bet that most of your Bibles, if you look right there above the chapter marker, it's going to say the triumphal entry. Jesus at this point... Uh, right at the beginning of chapter 11, is just a few miles away, a few miles to the east of Jerusalem, uh, in this region of Bethpage and Bethany. 
uh, right on the other side of the Mount of Olives. So he's about to make this journey into Jerusalem. In fact, I think we have a picture up here. So you see this kind of this route that he's at. So he's taking this route from Bethany, kind of up to Bethpage. This is the city of Jerusalem here, and then you have the temple, and this is kind of the area where he's entering in from the east. So this is a very familiar story to us, um, but as he gets close, he gets to this region around Bethany and Bethpage, uh, he changes things up. He does something very different that Jesus does not ever do in his ministry, and do you know what that is? He chooses not to walk. Chooses not to walk any further. Only time that he ever doesn't walk when he's trying to get somewhere is when he's traveling across the sea on a boat. But now he says, no more. We're going to do something different. And he dispatches two of his disciples to go up into the village ahead, probably to maybe Bethpage here even. And he wants them to get a donkey. Sends them on a mission. He says, listen, you're going to go into this town. You're going to fetch this donkey for me. And you're going to bring it back here, and I'm going to use that, and I'm going to ride on it into Jerusalem. No doubt we, we are familiar with the story, right? The disciples do so, and it's kind of interesting because he tells them, hey, if anybody gets suspicious about this because you're untying their donkey, uh, just tell them, hey, I need it, the Lord needs it, and uh, we'll bring it back here immediately to you afterwards. You're like, okay. And guess what? It unfolds exactly the way that Jesus said it would, as if he knew, right? He knows what's going to happen. And I think the details of this are, are kind of important. They're very unique because it's not just any donkey that Jesus wants. What's, what's the descriptor? What type of donkey is that, that he's looking for in this story? What did the, what did the text say? Yeah. Not just even the colt, but what, what type of, uh, what's, what's unique about this donkey that he, it is a colt. You are absolutely right. We'll talk about that in just a second, but there's some other detail. Yeah. It's never been sat on. You're like, okay, that's kind of unique. Well, why does that matter? Anybody know? Why, why does it matter that no one has ever sat on this donkey before? Sometimes there's just these details in stories. You're just like, I don't know. It feels irrelevant. So why would he need a donkey that nobody's ever ridden on before? The answer is actually found in kind of this identity that Jesus is, is trying to present here because in the ancient culture, uh, for a king to ride into uh, some place, the king had a special animal that no one else had ever ridden on. He was the sole person who would ride on that. Usually it was a horse, but Jesus here chooses a donkey, right? And so there's a very kingly aspect to this where he says, this animal has been designated just for me. Nobody else has ever ridden it. It is mine, and I'm going to use it for this purpose. Now, going back to what you were just saying, Adley, here, this kind of goes to what Jesus is even saying here. There's a, there's a messianic kingly uh, perspective here because he's fulfilling uh, what Zechariah hundreds of years earlier had prophesied. Uh, that Israel's uh, Messiah would come, but he would come in a very unique way. Your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, but it's not just this powerful, burly, uh, authoritative guy. It says he is humble and mounted on a donkey, not even just a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. In other words, it's a baby donkey. It's not even just a donkey, it's a little one talk more about the significance of that in a moment here but jesus by doing this by using a donkey he's making it very clear who he is and this is very significant we'll talk about again in just a moment here but this crowd is getting excited because they're they're on to something like okay jesus is doing something here very different we know some of these things that the, the scriptures have said this is the moment we have all been waiting for and they get excited, right? They start to throw their, their cloaks over the, the donkey because there's no saddle. So allow Jesus to sit on that. They, they spread their cloaks on the ground. They spread palm branches. And this is not just Jesus and his disciples. This is like Jesus and like an entourage. Because remember, Jesus traveled with not just his 12, but these are pilgrims coming from all over for the, the festivities of the Passover, which were like, as we even learned last week with Jesus when he was a kid, these were large groups that traveled together. And so all of them were now getting excited, getting into this. There's like this whole posse that's like entering into Jerusalem now from the east. 
and they're excited. They're, 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 they're singing what are called Hosanna songs from Psalm 118. Uh, this idea of Hosanna means save now. They, they are seeing Jesus in some type of special messianic deliverance uh, capacity here. And not only that, it says that he is approaching from the east. And you notice in this picture here, uh, this uh, area right here is called the Mount of Olives. Very significant in uh, Israelite history. Uh, Zechariah, again, we just quoted Zechariah a moment ago, but in Zechariah 14, what we learn is that Israel's deliverer on the day of the Lord would return to, guess where? Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. And if you want to go even a step further, what was significant in the Old Testament is that Ezekiel, who was one of the big prophets of the the Old Testament, he had a a vision in uh, Isaiah, or not Isaiah, in Ezekiel 43, uh, of the glory of the Lord returning uh, to Israel. Because because of Israel's sins and all of its idolatry, the glory of the Lord had left the temple and had gone out to the east. Well, guess what? Ezekiel 43, he prophesies that that glory is going to return. And guess what direction it's coming from? It's coming from the east. Coming from the direction of the Mount of Olives. Coming back into the temple. Yes, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff going on by this simple entry into Jerusalem. So the question before you as you kind of look at these verses is this. When we ask this question of, is your faith misplaced in Jesus? The real question is, are, are you receiving him for who he really is? This entry into Jerusalem was making it very clear to everyone that the king is here. This is unique because what has Jesus done for most of the first 10 chapters of Mark's gospel? Has Jesus been a giant billboard about who he is? No. In fact, most of the time, whenever he does something magnificent, what does he usually tell people to do? Shh. Keep it on the down low. Okay? Didn't want all this confusion. Didn't want all this distraction. But now Jesus is saying that time is over. I'm not going to keep this veiled any longer. By doing this very act, entering in the way that I am, I'm making it very clear to everyone that I am Israel's chosen Messiah. I am the true and anointed king who is coming to return. The cat is now out of the bag. And so who is Jesus really? Well, as the king, he's the one who has all authority, right? He's the one who's telling his disciples exactly what to do. He's giving them those orders. He's dispatching them. He's making it very clear as the king, he is the one who orchestrates all things and gives them all charges of what to do and how to obey and how to live. As the king, he is the one who has all sovereignty. Notice in this story that Jesus is like orchestrating all the details. Uh, I mentioned this already, but it's so funny because some commentators try to say, well, maybe the reason that uh, Jesus maybe prearranged with these people in Bethpage that the donkey was going to be used for his purposes and stuff. And it's like, no, Jesus, Jesus is always sovereign. He's always working behind the scenes to have things accomplished the way that he so desires. So again, to be sovereign means he is in control, right? And as the king, he is the one who has all control, all ability to make things happen the way that he has planned. But the unique part about this is even as the king, he displays all humility. We've seen this throughout the gospel, right? This high and mighty character and yet someone who is also gentle and lowly. He is a king unlike any other king. And so this is the Jesus that Mark presents to us. So the question for you is this. Is this the Jesus that you have embraced? The one who has clear power and authority mainly to forgive you of your sins? Or are you receiving Jesus for who you want him to be? Are you receiving him for who you want him to be? The response of the crowd seems 
fitting at first glance, but as is often the case, an up-close look reveals a misplaced faith in who Jesus really was. Were they viewing Jesus as a king and a deliverer? Absolutely they were. But let me ask you this. How many times in the Gospels, and in particular Mark's Gospel that we've studied over the last year, how many times when Jesus is telling or revealing himself to be uh, the, the Messiah and the deliverer of the, of the people, how many times do the people have a right understanding of what that means? Like, pretty much next to none, right? They all have a very skewed or a very, uh, we can say even a superficial view of what that actually looks like. And it doesn't start here, I don't think, where they start to understand. These people were praising Jesus for who they wanted him to be, not for who he really was. Verse 10, they are excited because they say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Right? We've seen this before from the disciples. Uh, they're ready for Jesus to restore and establish his Kingdom. In other words, what that means is they're ready for him to overthrow Roman rule because, again, the Jews were under the control of the Roman government at this time. They're ready for Jesus to come in and restore the glories of the kingdom of Israel. We are now going to be a powerful nation again, just like we were in our father David's day. We are going to rule. We are going to be looked at with respect. People are not going to laugh at us. We are going to be the ones who are back on top. It's easy to worship Jesus, to worship a Jesus, we imagine or portray in our own minds. Very different from the way that maybe the scriptures portray Jesus to actually be. It's not very uncommon for us to create a Jesus that we think is more appealing and more in line with what maybe these people wanted, right? live in a culture right now where our view of Jesus might be a loving Jesus. We want a loving Jesus, right? One who uh, embraces us for who we are in our entirety and in particular tolerates maybe some of the things that the Bible would call sin. Because after all, Jesus is love. God is love. And so love means we let people do whatever pleases them, right? So perhaps that's the Jesus that you're worshiping. Maybe it's the Jesus of prosperity that really Jesus is just there to make your life easier. Jesus is there as kind of a nice tack on. It's a nice resume builder. It's something that makes you look good for others. Maybe helps you get ahead in the right areas. There's no real allegiance to him. It's all about what Jesus can do for you. Or perhaps you worship the the distant Jesus, the one that um, you're cool with on Sundays and on Wednesdays uh, by association with, but really makes no impact on your everyday life. Outside of those times, Jesus is just kind of an afterthought. Right? There's all kinds of ways that we can make Jesus into who we want him to be rather than the way the Bible actually presents him to be and how we are called to embrace him and receive him. And so the first important question for you this morning is this. Is your faith misplaced in Jesus? Really think about that. But then the second question you need to think about this morning is this. Is your faith misleading to others? Is your faith misleading to other people? This is where we get into the second half of our story in verses 12 to 25. But before moving on to verse 12, I want to look at the, the verse that sets all this up in verse 11, because it seems like this verse is very, well, it doesn't seem, it is very anticlimactic, right? You have this big triumphal entry into Jerusalem. I mean, this, this crowd, everybody's buzzing. I mean, this moment is exciting. It's building towards something incredibly huge. And then verse 11 comes, and he entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. And you're like, yes, yes, yes. And then when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. And you're like, what? All of the, all of the, the, the show, all of the, the entry, you're like, did Jesus just, did he just poorly mistime his entry? Oh, man, I, t 
totally was off by 30 minutes. Everybody's gone now. Silly me, right? Certainly don't want to put too much emphasis on this verse, but I also don't want to overlook it either because Mark is one who gives us small details that ultimately have big meaning to them. And he obviously thought it was important for us to see this here. It's true. It was late, so there wasn't much commotion going on in the temple at this time. There's not many people around. But I think here Jesus, like a conquering king, surveys the battlefield that's before him. He enters into the temple, which is the heart of Israelite worship. And he begins to survey the landscape of things. Just like a, maybe a general does before battle. He goes out to the field and he surveys what's ahead of him. And he contemplates what is there. Ready for the fight that's coming in the days ahead. Because guess what? In the coming days, there is going to be a battle that goes on in the temple between Jesus and the religious leaders. Over the chapters 11 and 12 of Mark, we're going to cover those in the weeks ahead. That is the battle that's about to unfold. But then it says, after he surveys, he went out. And that's not too uncommon, uh, but he does so again in verse 19. Next day, he does the same thing. Uh, Jerusalem is a crowded city. Lots and lots of people are coming in for the Passover. So a lot of times there wasn't room for people to stay in Jerusalem. They had to stay in some of the outskirt towns. But I can't help see, but see some of the significances. Because you remember all this buildup of Jesus entering into the temple uh, that we just talked about. All this language of him coming in from the Mount of Olives from the east. All this restored glory of the Lord that's coming back into the temple. And just as quickly as it gets there, it leaves again. The next day he gets there, he cleans house, and he leaves again. I can't help but wonder if there's not some type of symbolism or some type of judgment of the fact that the Lord's glory returns temporarily only to pronounce a final judgment on it before leaving again. Just as quickly as it appears, it leaves again. And if that judgment itself is not clearly displayed in him just going back out of the city, then I know that it's on display here in these verses for what we see with the fig tree. So let's look at the fig tree story, which I believe is, a, is kind of an object lesson that Jesus is using to talk about the Israelite way of worship here. So the very next day, verse 12, on the following day, they're making the two-mile trek back into Jerusalem from Bethany, where they were. And Jesus, like most of us do about mid-morning, get hungry, right? I don't know about you, but I'm that type of person who I eat breakfast, but then by the time I get to like the church, I'm already hungry again. So Jesus is, you know, making that two-mile trek back into Jerusalem, and he gets hungry. He's fully God and fully man. He gets hungry, and he wants himself a mid-morning snack. I can't blame him, right? And so what does he do? Verse 13, he sees in the distance a fig tree and leaf. And so he thinks to himself, perfect. I'll just grab myself some fruit. I'll grab some figs off there. We'll, we'll, we'll keep moving along. I'm going to have my mid-morning sack. It's going to be great. Only one problem. When he gets to the tree, what does he discover? No fruit. No fruit. Just leaves. No fruit. And seeing this frustrates Jesus, and he does something that appears somewhat vindictive for Jesus, and that is that he curses the fig tree. And he says to him, him, says to it, may you never bear fruit again. And notice verse 14, it says that the disciples heard it. That's important that the disciples heard it. You're like, okay, that was a really weird moment. Not sure what that was all about. And just like that, they move along and they go into the temple, move about their day's work. Next, the night, they, they come back to Bethany, and then the very next day again, so again, this is like Tuesday morning, so this is two mornings again later. Next day, verse 20, they travel that same path again, and what do they find? That same tree that Jesus had cursed is now what? It's withered. Translation, it's dead. That tree is dead, totally dead, down to the very roots. There's no, like, nursing it back to health, right? If you've ever had a plant in your house like us, 
it's like, oh man, it's starting to go and uh, it just needs more water, it needs more light, it needs all these things, and you can maybe gradually nurse it back to health. Not the case with this tree. Totally dead, down to the very roots. Total and complete judgment against the tree. And you may think to yourself, this is harsh and very unlike Jesus. And if that's the case, you might need to even think about question number one again. What type of Jesus are you worshiping? But the point of this is that this fig tree serves as an object lesson. In other words, it is an, a living illustration, well, now a dead one, but a living illustration of something that is a much bigger issue than a lack of figs. Notice that this story comes in what we call a sandwich, right? So verses 12 to 14, you see this issue with the fig tree. And then you return to the fig tree again in verses 20 and 21, right? So you have these two areas, these uh, sandwich uh, pieces, if we want to call them our, the bread of our sandwich, or since we're talking about figs, if we want to call them the outer layers of the fig newton sandwich, right? Inside you've got the, the, the creamy filling, or you've got the, the meat of the sandwich. In other words, what these two things are doing on the top and on the bottom are trying to prove the point of what's in between. It's an illustration of what is happening in between those two pieces of the puzzle or the pieces of the sandwich. And so what Jesus is asking us here, or what Mark is trying to have us consider here as you think about is your faith misleading to others, is this, is it giving all the appearance of life? Does your religiosity, the way that you conduct yourself, give all the appearance of life. See, the issue with the fig tree was that it gave all the appearance of life. It seems weird that Jesus would be upset with the tree when Mark tells us very clearly it was not the season for figs. Which makes it all the more like confusing. Well, why is Jesus upset then? If he knows this is not the season when figs and fruit appear on this tree, why is he so upset? The reason he's upset, student, is because it had leaves on it. And you're like, uh, okay, it's a tree. Of course, it's got leaves on it. I get it, right? Like That still does not help me understand. But here's the reality. Something that we don't understand in our culture as it relates to, to fig trees. Whenever a fig tree is in leaf, leaves bring the promise of fruit. Okay, so if you lived in that culture, this is what you understood. If a, if a fig tree is in full leaf like this, it's going to have fruit on it. It's going to have figs being produced from it. That's just an understanding. So the fact that it had leaves on it, even though it wasn't technically harvest season or fruit picking season gives all the impression that, hey, this tree has fruit. We're going to come over to it. We're going to be able to pick off as much as we want from it. It's not normal to have one without the other. So remember, this tree has all the signs of life, and yet it had no fruit. And remember, this is an object lesson, a sandwich with the story of the figs here, and then in verses 20 to 25. What comes in between it? Jesus cleaning the temple. Jesus essentially cursing and judging what's happening in the temple. After all, the temple was the heartbeat of Israelite worship. And so Jesus' judgment on it would be seen as pretty significant. Because the temple gives all the appearance of religion, of, of spiritual life. Busyness, religious activity happening everywhere. And yet, like the fig tree, we're going to see that it was nothing more than a fraud. It was nothing more than a fraud because even though it gave all the appearance of life, it was lacking any true spiritual fruits. Similar to what Jesus finds on the fig tree, Jesus looks around at the leaves of the temple. And he sees a lot of leaves, by the way. He sees a lot of leaves happening, a lot of busyness, a lot of commotion, a lot of religiosity happening. And what he finds is there is no fruit. 
There is no fruit. Again, to be sure, it's busy. There's plenty of activity happening. Man, if this was a church, it had a lot of people. It had a lot of ministries. It had a lot of things going for it. But there's no true worship happening. God had become an afterthought. He had become peripheral to everything that was happening in the temple. And that certainly begins with Israel's leaders who have allowed this to take place. And so what does Jesus do? Time for some spring cleaning, right? Jesus cleans house. Again, not the Jesus that we are used to in the Gospels. This is Jesus who is angry, but righteously angry. In this righteous anger, he directs all of this at the offenses against God. Shows us just how passionate Jesus is about our worship and that he is not just some sideshow in our lives. Jesus makes it clear that he will judge those who give all the appearance of spirituality but lack any true spiritual fruit. So you might ask yourself, well, how, how are they lacking fruit? Like, what, what does the story tell us that gives us indications that they were lacking fruit? Well, I think the story would show us that they were proving to be greedy rather than generous. They were proving to be greedy rather than generous. You notice that the story says there's all kinds of buying and selling going on. And to be sure, it, there are some very true market pieces to that where it's like, okay, this is just business that should not be conducted in church, right? Like this is just stuff that doesn't belong in the temple. But in particular, one of the things that was probably taking place with that whole market system was the buying and selling of animals for sacrifice. After all, this is Passover, you have to have animals for Passover sacrifices, which is not wrong that they're selling them, right? Because for a lot of people, that's a long distance to bring your, your, your lamb or your sheep or whatever it is that you're sacrificing. For some people, it might get injured along the way. It might get lost along the way. It might die along the way. Or it's just hard to bring in. So rather than go through all the, the outcasts that you that you would by not having an animal, they're, they're providing those, right? They're allowing them to, to buy them, which is not a bad thing so long as you're being honest and fair about it, right? But what if you start to say, oh, you know, inflation, right? Like, you know, that person just bought a lamb. It's actually, you know, now there's less lamb, so the price of this one's going up. Supply and demand, Right? So you're going to have to pay extra for this one. Wow. Okay. Suddenly we're getting kind of greedy about things, aren't we? You notice that it says that he turns over the tables of the money changers. The money changers were essentially people uh, that were allowing you to exchange money because uh, a lot of these pilgrims who were coming to, to the temple for Passover time, they were uh, outside of the nation of Israel. In other words, they had maybe foreign currency, which is not uncommon, right? We, we understand how that works in our culture, right? Sometimes you have to exchange currency so that you can pay the appropriate thing for the temple because the temple had a particular currency. So no harm, no foul there, except for the fact that once again, they would charge extra rates for it. Oh, you have to exchange money? Well, great. That'll be this price plus some more because of the rate, right? It's like when you go to an ATM, sometimes it's like, oh, I want to withdraw $20. Great. That'll be $25. You're like, what? I'm going to pay extra money just to get my money. Overturns the tables of the pigeons. The pigeons were animals that would have been uh, offered as sacrifices by the poor. So again, like things that would have been available for even the poorest and lowest in the society to be able to use for sacrifice. All this activity was selfish rather than generous, which is also why we see that it was kind of legalistic rather than loving. This was a religious system that had all these rules about what you must do in order to truly worship God. Unless you abide by these rules, your worship is not true. It's not sincere. Jesus quotes here from Isaiah 56, 7, this quote of saying, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. So this is the, the passage that he quotes it from. But notice it's in the context of 
foreigners who are coming to worship the one true God. That's, a, that's an amazing reality, right? Foreigners who join themselves to the Lord. Uh, these, are, these are people who are desiring to come and worship the God of Israel. Praise the Lord for that. He says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. Jesus is saying, listen, I am, I am here to be worshipped by all peoples. And yet, here you are in your temple, in your spirituality, in all your religiosity, and you're putting up barriers to the nations worshipping me. You're more concerned about all your particular practices. And by doing so, you are making it harder for people to worship me. That's what legalism does. It does not do so in the name of love. It does so in the name of rules. By doing so, again, we create walls and barriers to people actually worshiping God. And guess what, students? We do this today still. Churches are really good at it, and even us as teenagers are really good at it. We prioritize the things that are not always the priority to God, our preferences like music, clothing, technology, entertainment, which church we go to, what school we go to. And we say those things are more important than the things that truly matter to the Lord. And in so doing, boy, we can look really religious on the outside but really unloving on the inside. In so doing, we kind of prove ourselves to be hypocritical rather than sincere. What's really interesting here, Jesus says, you have turned my temple, this holy place, into a den of robbers. That's pretty strong language. Obviously, for all the, the, the things that they were, were doing, obviously there was some, some greediness and some sort of gain from this. But this, this den of robbers language actually comes from a passage in the Old Testament in Jeremiah, verses, uh, seven, chapter 7, verses 9 to 11. Let me read it real quick because I actually think this is really significant for what Jesus is saying here. Jeremiah says this, Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Translation. Are you just going to live most of your life as if I don't really matter to you? You're going to go about your life and you're going to worship the gods of entertainment. You're going to worship the gods of sex. You're going to worship the gods of, uh, of, of uh, success and uh, privilege and opportunity and athletics and whatever. You're going you're gonna to pursue all these things and then you're going to show up on Sunday and say, God is so great. He's so wonderful. And then go about the rest of your day and the rest of your life, the rest of the week, acting like that's an afterthought. Jesus uses this language, den of robbers, that's tied to this context that says, listen, this is nothing more than hypocrisy. You're going to act like we're good and we're, you're going to show up here. You're going to do your practices. You're going to do your offerings. You're going to act like, man, God is so good. And then you're going to go about the rest of your day, the rest of your life. And I'm an afterthought to you. That's not sincere faith. That's why Jesus called the religious leaders of his day, whitewashed tombs. They look really good on the outside, but on the inside, they are full of dead man's bones. It's really the question, student, for you of what does your life look like from a telescope versus a microscope? Because guess what? From a telescope perspective, from really far away, it might look pretty good. It might look like it's got leaves all over, like it's flourishing. It's got something really good going for you. But if you were to put it under the microscope and you were to look at it up close and God was to evaluate your heart, what would he actually see? What would he see if he was looking at your life on Monday morning at 10 o'clock? Friday evening at 7 p.m.? What's he truly going to see in your life outside of these normal times of worship? 
Because that right there is what's going to determine and show the sincerity of what your faith is actually in. And so as we close this morning, I want to just give a couple points for you to consider. First of all, this. It's easy to make Jesus in our own image, but stick to what is true. Receive Jesus for the authoritative, sovereign, and gentle king that he is, not the tolerant or passive king that you have imagined him to be in your mind. Right? This is exactly the first point we talked about this morning. Don't make Jesus into your own image. Don't, don't try to conjure up a Jesus in your mind that's not accurate to what the Bible says. And don't do that because you think the Bible portrays Jesus in a wrong light. See his authority and see his gentleness as a good thing for you, not a threat to you. But secondly, be reminded of this this morning. Faith is at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus. We didn't really have a lot of time for it, but verses 23 to 25 is kind of on the back end of uh, the cursing of the fig tree. Jesus really responds to the disciples when they say, Rabbi, look, the, the tree that you cursed, it, it, it's withered. And Jesus doesn't give some long explanation, but he responds to them with kind of a, a, a conversation about the nature of true faith, what true faith looks like. Remember, this fig tree was cursed to the very roots. When something is cursed to its roots, that's total judgment. But I believe it also points us to the truth that there was a deep, below-the-surface issue. In other words, that's not a quick fix. To get to the root of a problem is to get to the heart of something. It's the central focus. And at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus is not busyness and religiosity, it's not the appearance of looking spiritual. At its very core, what it means to follow Jesus is to live a life of faith. And faith is not some abstract reality. It's not just some wishful thinking. It's a life that is lived dependently upon God, not for yourself. It's a life that's demonstrated through prayer. It's a life that Jesus says is demonstrated through trust in all circumstances. It is a life that is marked by forgiveness. All of those things come back to the nature of what it means to truly trust and believe in Jesus. Third, professing faith means nothing. Nothing apart from fruit. This is... Really, at the heart of what Jesus talked about earlier in Matthew's Gospel in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is a very uh, important dialogue that Jesus gave, or important teaching. And at the very end of that, Jesus says in chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, Many will say to me on the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name do all these great things? In other words, Jesus, did we not go to church? Did we not uh, go to Sunday school? Did we not go to uh, the first Friday events? Did we not serve at the Face for Christmas dinner? Right? Did we not do all these things? And on that day, Jesus will say, I never knew you. I never knew you. Student, your attendance and your participation in some of the events that I just described before you are incredibly important. They're so valued. I love that you're here. I want you here. But if those things are not being driven by faith, they're not the things that Jesus will welcome and receive you in for. Jesus makes it clear you will know this is real by the fruit it produces every other moment throughout the week. I'm not saying that your life needs to look perfect. It doesn't mean that the moment that you sin that you have to doubt everything about yourself. But it does mean your life is constantly growing. That you are showing those signs of faith. That your life is marked by more by prayer, more by trust, more by forgiveness. Those are the things that will show there is something deeper here that is true and sincere rather than hypocritical. And if you need to know for your own life, what does that look like for you? Or what are you seeing in your own life? Talk to your parents. Talk to your small group leader. Talk to myself. We'd love to walk alongside you as you're thinking through those types of questions. But just remember, professing 
faith, saying, I love Jesus, doesn't mean anything apart from what is else going on in your life, especially bearing spiritual fruits. And that leads us to the final point this morning is this. A fruitless life is a Christless life. These two things must go hand in hand together. They cannot be apart, kind of like leaves and figs, right? They have to go together. And so if your life is lacking genuine fruit, then I would tell you that it's probably lacking genuine root. It's not established in what it's supposed to be, which is Christ. And that's no surprise because Jesus himself tells us in John 15, 5, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do how much? Nothing. In other words, if you are producing nothing, the question is, are you actually connected to the true vine? Is your life actually rooted in Christ? It's the reason we adopted that name for our ministry years ago, right? You have to be rooted in Christ. Otherwise, it's not going to produce that fruit in your life. Jesus is not meant some words in this passage here. And really, over the next several weeks here, as we kind of look at his confrontation with the religious leaders of the day, it's going to really cause us to wrestle with some important questions about what is true about our faith? What is it that I'm believing? How am I living out my, my life? And what does that actually say about my worship of God? And so don't fight against those things. Receive them with humility as we come to them in the weeks ahead. But just know, student, there is hope here, right? There is hope. If your life is lacking that fruit, Christ has come. He has entered into this world for this particular purpose, to save you and redeem you so that your life can bear much fruit and that you can spend eternity with him. So let's pray. And we will look at the next part of this next week. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this morning. Thank you for the attention of our students and pray that this morning has been helpful. We've covered a lot of ground in this story. The one that is so uh, significant for us in terms of evaluating uh, the nature of our faith. So give us all humility to receive it and to evaluate it. To really, Lord, treasure Christ for who he is. Um, and Lord, for those who have, who have truly put their their roots down in Christ, pray that you would help them to bear much fruit with their lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.